If you've got your Bible, let's go ahead and get there. John chapter 13. We're actually going to be looking at verses 31 through 35 together this morning. And John tells us, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray. To our passage this morning, we, um, before I jump into it, one of the most emotionally moving things I've ever seen in a movie was in a movie that I watched in 2002 called John Q. Uh, it's a Denzel movie. It's a Denzel movie. And uh, why are you laughing, Tasia? Because... Have you seen John Q? Yes. yes, okay, good, yeah. Uh, how many people here have seen John Q? That's good, okay, that's good. If you haven't seen it, it's a good one to watch. It's, uh, Denzel's in it, so, you know, awesome. Um, and uh, it's about a young boy who has a heart condition and is dying. And he can't get up on the donor list, and it has something to do with his insurance or funding or things like that. His father is driven to this desperate measure of ultimately... Uh, well, I'm not going to tell you the plot of the movie, but what I will say is this. At the end of the movie, the father is, uh, has been shot, and the father decides he's going to ultimately take his own life and give his heart to his son. And um, the, uh, one of the final parts of the movie that you see is this father, as he is uh, talking to his son in kind of the last moments of his life. Uh, and it's so moving. And I want to I read to you, it, it isn't that long, what he says to his son um, as he's about to say goodbye to him forever and leave him. Um, he says, I just need to tell you a few things. You always listen to your mother. You understand, do what she tells you to do. She's your best friend. You tell her you love her every day. You're too young for girls right now, but there's going to come a time. And when it does, you treat them like princesses, because that's what they are. When you say you're going to do something, when you say you're going to do something, you do it. Because your word is your bond. Son, it's all you have. And money. You make money if you get a chance. Even if you've got to sell out once in a while. Make as much money as you can. Don't be stupid like your father. Everything is so much easier with money, son. Don't smoke. Be kind to people. When somebody chooses you, we talked about this, you stand up, you be a man. You stay away from bad things, son. Please don't get caught up in the bad things. There's so many great things out there for you. And the final thing he says to him is, I'll never leave you. I'm always with you. Right there, son. I love you, son. I watch this scene and it just breaks me apart because I, I immediately think, what would I say to my son or to my daughter if I had the opportunity to say something to them before leaving them, leaving them and feeling like they might be alone? 
This is exactly where Jesus is at with the disciples right now. Judas has left, and uh, that means a lot because it means that now it really is just Jesus and the people who are genuinely trusting him and following him as his disciples. And he loves them. He loves them deeply. He knows that he's about to leave them and that he's going to leave them feeling orphaned and alone. He's going to leave them, and it's going to be hard. And he's giving them words of guidance to leave them with because he knows it's not going to be an easy road ahead. The words he gives them are this. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is what he tells them. He knows that when life gets hard and things get difficult and scary and you feel alone, you have a tendency to become inwardly focused. We become about ourselves. We hunker down, we, uh, we prepare ourselves, and we don't think about giving, about others, about the needs of the people around us. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, love each other. And in doing so, he's talking to them about one another. He's, this is a message for the church about the church. It's a message for believers, disciples, about how we treat other believers, other disciples, members of the family of God. He says this is a new command. The word new that he uses here is only used twice in the book of John, in the gospel of John. The only other time he uses this word specifically is to say that Jesus enters into a, they put him into a new tomb, one that's been completely unused before. And so it's a completely new thing that they're hearing from Jesus. And it says that it's a command. And this word command, it literally means like marching orders. This is what a, a person tells those that are under them, like a general. They say, do this thing. So it's not just advice. It's not just encouragement. It's not comfort. It's a clear command. If you're someone who's following a guy like Jesus for three years of your life, chances are you've been waiting for some kind of a command. You've been waiting for him to make it so simple to just say, do this. And Jesus doesn't ever really seem to make it quite that simple, right? One of the things that seems to frustrate us about Jesus. But here he does. He says, I'll make it easy for you. I want you all to love one another. And how do we love one another? He says, you love one another just as I have loved you. The guide for our love, the blueprint for our love is Jesus' love. How do we know how to love? We look at God's word. We look at what Jesus did. We even look at what the Father did before him. That tells us how we are supposed to love each other. And he says, if you do this, and this is a pretty big claim, a pretty big statement. If you do this, the world will know that you're my disciples. He doesn't say if you condemn each other. He doesn't say if you judge each other. He doesn't say if you purify each other or keep each other purified and holy. He says, if you love one another as I have loved you, then the world will know that you're my disciples. This is a new kind of love that he's talking about. And why it's new and what we can see from it. There's two, essentially two things about the way that Jesus loves, the, about the way that he loves us. He loves his disciples that is the blueprint for us. The first one of them is this, that his love is wider. Essentially what we see is that his love is, is both wider and it is deeper. 
It is broader, and it goes to greater depths. So the first thing about Jesus' love that we see in the way that he has been living and serving is that it's a lot wider than the love that we have naturally for one another. He, he says uh, that this is a new commandment. And why does it seem new to them? Because um, if you know anything about the Gospels or what Jesus has taught, you know that in the Old Testament in Leviticus, there was this law and it said, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, Jesus teaches on this in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, you guys took that and you distorted it. You added something to it. You made it so that it didn't actually require you to love each other like God intended, but it became an excuse for you to hate people you didn't like. Now, the reason why this was given in the Old Testament was because people had this sort of way of treating each other where if someone wronged you, that you could, you could do what they did to get back at them, basically. Jesus says, an eye for an eye, right? A tooth for a tooth. You guys have heard that. The idea was if someone gouged out your eye, you could gouge out their eye. Now, the reason that law exists is because people were gouging out both eyes. They were going, well, you gouged out one eye, but, you know, we got pain and suffering, and we have damages, and we've got to take all that into account, plus loss of time work, so I'm going to take both your eyes, right? And, and, and God tells the people, no. At the, at, at the absolute most, you can only do what's been done to you to make things even. So they took that. And they, and they added it over into this command to love your neighbor. And they said, so we're allowed to love our neighbor, but hate our enemy. And we hate them equally for what they've done with us. And Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, when I say love your neighbor, I mean love everyone. You need to love everyone. Whoa, everyone? Who's our neighbor, Jesus? And then he talks about what it means to have a neighbor, who it is that you're supposed to be loving. Now, Jesus again, is saying to the disciples that they're going to know you by the way that you love one another. And he knows that there's going to be a lot of people within this community who have false motives, who are extremely immature, who make really bad choices that end up hurting the church and hurting the witness. And he gives uh, a lot of examples of the basically saying, there's, there's a parable of wheat and tares where he says, you have weeds growing up with the wheat. And if you try to pull out the weeds, you're going to damage the wheat. If you make it all about purifying this place all the time, keeping it perfect and holy all the time, making sure everyone's intentions are right all the time, then you'll cause more damage to the ministry than good. And so what does he say? He says, just wait until the end. God's going to reap the harvest. He'll take care of them. You don't have to worry about it. That's God's job. So that's not your job. You see guys like Judas, who are amongst the 12 disciples themselves. Jesus knows he's going to betray him. Jesus knows he's a liar, knows he's a liar and that he's stealing from him. And, and, and what does he do? Does he, does he weed him out? Does he root him out? No. He continues to allow him to be there with them. What we see with Jesus is this command and this ability to love everybody. He takes the number of people, the size of the group that we would normally be loving towards, and he blows it up. And he says, you think you can only love these people, but I say, I command you to love these people. He said this to them because the church was going to be such a diverse place. The early church is filled with diversity. It is the definition of diversity. 
Most house churches, which were what they had at the time, you read about this in the epistles, especially when Paul paints the, uh, sort of a picture through his letters of what these churches were probably comprised of, the kinds of people that were in them. Most people met in a house church, and a house church would be anywhere from 30 to 50 people. And in a house church, you would have a variety of people. First, you'd have the homeowner. And if he's got a house that a church can meet in, you can bet he's probably doing pretty well. And so you've got a homeowner that's pretty comfortable. You've got his family, and you've got his servants who would be there. On top of that, you've got some other slaves who live in the area who, uh, who come. And at, at times, in certain places, you had slave owners come worship as well. With, in the same church as their slaves. You had people that were, were slaves and now they're free and, uh, and, and they've recently been freed from slavery. They would worship there as well. You have educated people and you have people who were completely uneducated. You had wealthy people like this homeowner and you had completely poor people. You usually had a handful of homeless people as well that would just be part of the gathering. You would have men and you would have women worshiping together. And then you throw into that some tax collectors and a couple of prostitutes. And then a couple of Jewish people. The Jewish people were kind of the conservative, holy, religious people. The, the, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, they're kind of the liberals. You know, they're the, I didn't grow up maybe in this world and I'm not maybe used to that. And, um, and, and we don't have all the same values and everything. You have all these people together in a house doing church. That sounds like a disaster. Why would Jesus tell his disciples that if they could love one another like he loves them, that the world would know they're his followers? Because in the church, you have represented all of the different parts of society that never come together for any reason, really. And he says, if they're together and they can love each other, then that will change. That will change other people. That will show them you're my disciples. Now, we see this in the Christian faith worldwide. Christianity is a faith that started in one place and moved all around the world. And even today is now, is now exploding in areas that you, like, like Asia, like China, places even like Latin America, that you wouldn't immediately associate with the gospel of Jesus. It is not a faith of one nationality of one, eth uh, one ethnicity. It is not the faith of, of, of one socioeconomic group. It's not a faith that belongs to the rich or that belongs just to the poor and the impoverished. It is a faith that has included all walks of people, all types of people. And it is one of the only world faiths that does that, that you don't just associate with a certain place. Jesus' love is wider. It is much bigger than ours typically is. Because our tendency is not to think about all of these different types of people as the people that we're drawn to, to love as a part of the family of God. Our tendency is to be drawn to those who are exactly like us. You may not know this. I may be blowing your mind right now. But starting from a very young age, we feel more comfortable when surrounding ourselves with people who are like us. We call these people safe people. We call these people relatable people. We call them like-minded people who maybe share the same values. Or, but we feel more comfortable around people who are like us. And we do this, we need this in our lives. Because one of the things that we need the most deeply in life, there's three words, is to be seen, is to be heard, and is to be known. This is a 
huge value of the culture in which we live that we are all a part of. It is to be truly seen by some other people, to be truly known and understood by the people that matter to us, and, and, to, be, and to be heard, to really truly have our voice heard. We have become so desperate to be seen and known and heard, and this means that we need people around us who can do that. And so the people that we love, the people that we choose to be in relationships with, are the people who can do that for us the people who can give that to us. That's what community looks like. Because through community, I can be me. And in a family, my family, that's what I want the most. This is such a huge part of the way that we approach the world that just driving down the the freeway, I saw billboards for George Fox University. And they say, be seen, right? Be known, be heard. No, I'm not knocking George Fox, okay? Because that is an effective way to reach our culture, is to say, be seen, be known, be heard. We've talked about this with recruiting people for the military, that, that during world wars, the recruitment was, uh, I need you, Uncle Sam, right? We need you, a sense of duty, because people responded to a sense of duty. But people don't respond to that anymore. So what was it, at least in the 90s? It was be all that you can be. The few, the strong, the proud. Come be a part, we'll make you a better version of you. Because that's what people respond to now. And in the same way, whereas people used to go to college to see and hear and know things they didn't already know, why do people now feel drawn to it? To be seen by a group of people. To be known and to be heard. To be understood. We need this. Why? Because we're broken. Because even though God created us and said, I know you, I see you, hey, I see you, I hear you, I hear it, that part of you is good, it's good. You don't need your three best friends to completely know and understand you. You don't need to be so insecure about what everyone thinks when they look at you and how they feel about you and whether they get you, whether they don't get you, or whether they agree with you or they don't agree with you, or that you're putting your best foot forward or whatever else. You don't need that because I get you and see you and know you. And so you're totally fine. That's how we're meant to live, but we're broken in that way, and we don't feel that. There's like a void there, and so because of that, we say, for me, community is people that are like me who can give me those things, who can help me be known. In traditional cultures, uh, your identity was first and foremost shaped by your family. The family that you were born into was everything about you. Everybody looked at you and was like, what I see when I see that person is their family behind them. You lived with your family a lot longer. You lived with a lot more generations of family together. And whether you loved it or didn't like it, whether you liked your family or not, believe it or not, sometimes people didn't like their families because you may not know this, but you don't get to choose them. And so when people looked at you, whether you liked it or not, they saw your family. That was the first part of your identity. This is an honor-shame culture where the traditional church began In an honor-shame culture, if your identity is in your family, then the most honorable thing you can do is to respect and love and acknowledge your family. And the most shameful thing that you could do is to not love, care about, or the worst thing you could ever do is to deny your family. And so why on earth would Jesus say this in Luke? 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I first encountered this passage as a high schooler looking at a book in a bookstore on atheism, and it was an atheist talking about why Christianity is not real. And he said this chapter was on its inconsistencies. And he said, just take Jesus, a teacher who claims to love but also tells us to hate. I mean, how many of us have read this, have have come across this and been like, oh, Jesus, come on, you're making my life hard here. It's a mistranslation, the word hate doesn't really mean, it just means kind of, nope, that's that's not true. Strong dislike of, you could say that, that's that's a pretty literal translation. Like, why would you say this, Jesus? Really, seriously? Hate, dislike, even ourselves? What Jesus is telling his disciples is absolutely radical. He's saying, your identity, now that you're my follower, will not, first and foremost, be the family that you come from. It will be my family. It will be me. It will be this group of people. That is is step one in being my disciple. And if other people don't see you that way, eventually they probably will because of the way that you treat each other. And you say, well, my family's not like that in my life. Well, I just said, the family to each and every one of us, it might be the people we're related to, it might not be. It is the group of people that see me, that hear me, that know me, that with them I can truly be me. And Jesus says, I think in the same way, if you're not willing to deny that for my sake, then you cannot really be my disciple. He challenges this directly because we have to be rooted in Jesus himself. And the result of that is then seeing that our family becomes the church. And it's not just because we give each other meals when we're sick or because we do nice things for each other. It's because our identity is first and foremost as one of these people right here. This is who we are. We're a part of the church. We're the body of Christ. In fact, what that means, we're different parts of the body, which means unless we come together, we're not complete. I am not my last name. I am not my nationality. I am not the group of people I dress and act like. I am the part of the body of Christ, not the body of the family, not the body of the city, not the body of a country, but the body of Christ, which is the church. And so... The way that Jesus loves, oops, the way Jesus loves is wider. He says, I know that you have those people that you are comfortable loving. And that if you do, if you give everything you have for their sake, isn't that beautiful? Unfortunately, that's what everyone does. We all pick people. And choose to love those people. Why? Because they help us feel known. They make us who we want to be and who we are. Because we receive something back from that as well. And Jesus shows us something different. He shows us what it looks like to love a much bigger group of people that is much more diverse. But in doing that, he says, you're still going to find your identity. You're not going to lose it 
You're not going to lose yourself, which is like our biggest fear. The other thing about Jesus' love is that it's deeper. He loves to a depth that we can only barely begin, it seems, to understand. He loves sacrificially. And the disciples, if they're going to love like him, the quality of their love has to be different than what they're used to, than what the world accepts as love. Because the world accepts a different standard of love in both of these areas. But Jesus doesn't. The Christian is not called to love the world less, but to love the people of the church more. He's saying love them more. Love them more in a way that's revolutionary. Don't be known for how much you hate the world. Be known for how much you love the people in the community that you are a part of. And so you go, okay, fine. So I'll do this then. I'll try to love everybody. I'll try to love all the people in the church. I'll love more. I'll love deeper. I'll try harder. Thanks. That's great. Bye. And then what happens? You get worn out. It's exhausting. You're like, I don't have time for this. I don't have money for this. I don't have the resources of my life for this. I can't do it. To love any more than I'm loving right now. But this isn't true. Because the problem is the way that we love. It kind of depletes us. The way that we love is not the way that Jesus loved. You may be shocked to hear this, but scientists discovered quite a while ago that the emotional feeling of love releases dopamine into our brains, which makes us feel good. And so just like when you go on a run and you, that's a bad example because a lot of people hate running, right? You're like, nope. When, you go, when you're done with a run, okay, when you're done with a run and you're so proud of yourself, uh, if you made it home, I guess, uh, When you're done with a run, that feeling you have, the dopamine that's going through your brain. When people drink alcohol, when people experience pleasurable feelings, all kinds of pleasurable things that we do release dopamine in our brain that makes us feel good, and then we, it rewards that behavior, and then we continue that behavior. It's why habits form and addictions form, because we enjoy something, and then our brain continues to give us more and more feedback for that thing. The emotion of love makes us feel good. We love that feeling. We love that emotion. We love it. It's great. But we live in a world that is obsessed with this kind of love, that is obsessed with a love that feels good. And I'm not just talking about young puppy love, infatuation kind of love. I'm saying loving because it feels good. I like doing this for you. It feels good too. Or you talk about the reverse. I feel really guilty, so I'm going to do this, right? Okay, now I feel better. Now I can go to bed and not feel guilty because I called my mom or I, you know, let this person stay in my house for the week. Now I don't feel guilty. It feels good. That's why I love One of the ways that I learned this the most was, uh, again, read this in high school. Kind of weird that I read this in high school, but it helped. Uh, The Five Love Languages. It's a book on love languages. If you haven't read it, read it. It will help you with people, believe me. Basically says that we give love different ways, and we receive love in different ways. Some people give love by, they express love by giving people presents, and other people are like, I don't care about presents. I don't See why that's such a big deal. My wife, her family, Ellie's family, they love giving gifts. They love it. 
And it's, not, it's, it's picking out the right gift. It's wrapping the gift. That's a big deal, right? Wrapping the gift. And like the card and the note and all the stuff and everything. And so un, un, opening presents on the first Christmas with them, was, it was an exercise in patience for me. Because I'm not that big on all the, the details of those things. And, and, and I'm not a patient person at all. And so I'm just like ready to move on to the next thing. But every gift has a story. And every gift has to be kind of open slowly. And every part of it has to be appreciated. And they're so fulfilled by doing this because they love gift giving so much. I don't really love that so much. Believe it or not, that was kind of an issue for us in the beginning. Because for me, it was other things. Now, if I was smart, I would have gone, well, at least get Ellie gifts because that seems to be something she likes. But uh, it took me a while. I got there. I'm still working on it, actually, to be honest. But yeah, I got her a t-shirt for Christmas. And now she told me she won't wear it. So that's another story. How did I get myself here? Um, That's right, five love languages. We know that there are ways that we love other people that are more natural to us. And, And one of the hardest things is when you're in a relationship with somebody and you're like, what they need in order to feel loved is like the last thing that I'm used to doing, that I'm comfortable doing, that I think to do. That shows you how hard it is to love when you're not feeling that pleasurable response, when it in and of itself is not a satisfying thing to do. Because there's nothing better than loving other people when we ourselves enjoy it. But there's nothing harder than feeling like, I need to love someone, and I don't know that it's going to give me any of this positive feedback. So not only do we love people who we want to love us back, but we love people by doing the things that we want to do. I mean, this is essentially a, a kind of a, an immature view of love that Jesus encounters, and he kind of blows it up, and he says, it's a much deeper way of loving. Um, if I left my kids home alone for like a week, which I'm thinking about doing because the sermon illustrations would be amazing. Um, <laughs> if I left my kids home alone for a week, right, they would they get hungry, and um, they would, uh, it wouldn't be mealtimes, it'd be right in between, because that's when they're hungry. Um, they would get hungry, and they would go look for food. The first thing they would do, my son would eat Pringles, because he apparently is obsessed with Pringles right now. We don't have them around a lot, uh, and uh, just yesterday, he worked like for the full day with me, and said um, that he would do it for half a can of Pringles. <laughs> half, I got him to do half. I was like, a lot, uh, full can, that's kind of a lot. You know, that, that's gonna mess him up, but eh, half can, I could do that. He's like, sold, sold. Oh, man, you sucker, right? (laughs) He'll eat the Pringles. They'll eat the ice cream. My kids are really, they're they're all about going to the source. The times that they have snuck downstairs and we haven't, like, they went straight to sugar and salt. They didn't even go to food with sugar and salt. They went straight to a spoonful of salt, a spoonful of sugar. Salt on food is good. I'll take a spoonful of it. No, they don't have, like, a salt vitamin deficiency. A million people have told me that. They just... They're, they're smart like that, right? So they would work their way through all the things that they like, all the things that, that they enjoy eating that are easy for them to eat. And then they would eventually keep getting hungry and they'd move on to the other stuff. They'd, they'd start scrounging around, rummaging around, and they would eventually probably get through most of the food that we have in the house if they're hungry enough. And this is basically the way that we approach this act of loving other people. We start out with the people who are easiest. We start out with the things that are easiest. 
And eventually, if we have to, if there aren't more opportunities for that, then we move on and do the harder stuff with the harder people. But, but many of us, most of us, don't get very far in that process because we can find ways to love that are easier, that are more enjoyable, that feed into us as much as other people. But the way that Jesus loves us is not like this. It's nothing like this. It's a completely different kind of love. This kind of love you can expend yourself. You can use up all your efforts and resources and find yourself depleted at the end of the day. The way that Jesus loves is different because it's not based on, on feelings. It's not based on emotions. But it's also not based on just completely denying our feelings and our emotions either. Jesus loves through something called covenant. If you want to know how to love, read the Bible. Because the Bible is basically an account of God interacting with his people loving his people and what that looks like. One author says this, love then is not primarily emotion or affection, but rather a covenant commitment to another person. Commitment does not deny emotions. Commitment reorders emotions. What this author is saying is that the Bible, the way that God loves us is through a covenant. That's what he does. What he says is, I choose to be in a relationship with you and then he is faithful to that relationship. It is not about how he feels towards his people at all times, and it is not even about every individual thing that they do. It is about him saying, love is a choice to be committed to you. The truth is, the most meaningful relationships that we're a part of in our lives are covenant relationships. Marriages, children, our family, some of our closest friends, our relationships that we said at some point, okay, fine, I'm in this regardless of how it feels for me to be in this. I mean, one of the things about kids that's so frustrating is like, you know, you make this commitment, you make this covenant, you say, okay, this is it, I'm going to be a parent, I'm going to raise them, and then you got to do it. Regardless of how they turn out, how nice they are to you, how much it met with the image that you had in your mind of how it would be. Marriage is the same thing, but we're okay with people kind of being like, okay, let's just, it doesn't work. Let's go away from each other. Tired of hearing these people fight. That's fine. We, we see that with parents. We go, no, you, you probably shouldn't just like walk out on a kid because you're like, you are not what I signed up for. <laughs> but both are a covenant. One's just more socially acceptable than the other to probably say enough is enough. Now, I say that because significant, the real love, we know this. We know this is true. We know that real love is experienced in covenant with other people, in commitment with other people, in relationships with other people. We know also that through those relationships, we ultimately see who we are. That the relationships in which I've seen myself in the most real light is in the relationships that I've committed to for the long haul. Not just because it was easy, not because they happened to speak the same language that I did, not because they were just like me or into the same things that I was into. They change us. A covenant ultimately says two things. One, it is about being with someone. A covenant is a commitment to say, I will be with you. And God said to his people, I will be with you. And Jesus said, I will be with you. And if Jesus hadn't made that choice, he wouldn't have just naturally been with us because we're sinful. So it's not based on the other person being so great and amazing and deserving it. It's based on saying, I'm going to choose to be with you. 
So the first part of a covenant is just being with. You have to be with each other. You have to be in each other's lives. The second part of it is I will be for you. I will not just be with you, but I'm not going to be with you and be about me. Ah, man, that would be okay, you know. Okay, I commit to being with you. Now I'm going to be just about me. Jesus came to be with, and then he gave of himself sacrificially for them. And when we commit in in a covenant relationship to be with a person or with people, we commit that we're not just going to be in their presence, but we're going to be for their best interest. I will be for what is good for you. I choose to be for you like Jesus was for us. Love is ultimately acting in the best interest of a person saying, I want you to thrive. Now, for some of us, this means acting for other people when we would normally just be apathetic and do nothing. When we would normally not move, not speak, not care, not give, not serve. For others, it means the exact opposite. It means holding your tongue, taking a step back, not trying to make this person like you, as in identical to you, but instead saying, do they need something different from that? Often it's about listening and drawing out and serving. Ultimately, love says, I'm for you. I want you to do well. And again, let's remember that what Jesus said was, they'll know you by your love, not by your condemnation of each other. Oh, the the loving thing is to condemn someone until they're so beaten down and so crushed that they have nowhere to go but up, right? We've all even been in families where people approach life that way. That's not so great. It doesn't really work out that way. You know, I think one of the most difficult things about family is that we think we have these people totally figured out. That's why, like, you roll your eyes at your family sometimes. You go, oh, no, I know, I know. No, I've seen it before. I know. We all know. Everybody knows. It's fine. You feel like at a certain point, you just know everything about these people. And that's not how you feel about everyone else, but it's how you feel about your family. And a lot of times, that's a pretty negative thing. We feel that way about people in the church. We look at the church or the people in the church and go, I know what these people are all about. I know what it's like. I know everything I need to know about them. But that's not love. Jesus says this of all the things that he could say to his disciple, this is the command, love each other. And if you do this, it will change. It will change other people. It will change the world. Why do we know that? Because you can't just call the church a family. You can't just call it that because that's, it's kind of lazy to say we're just a family because a family with nothing beyond it that's bigger than it, just exists to be there with each other. But Jesus tells the disciples, you have a mission. You're to go and make disciples. Do all of these guys stay together? No. They don't interpret what he says as, now let's go form the most insanely awesome small group church that's ever existed. It will be amazing. They spread out. They go out. They go out because they're given a mission. And the salvation of other people depends on that. 
And so, yes, we're a family, but we're a family that's called to do something together. And he seems to believe, Jesus, that if they, seem, if they can love each other with all their differences and all their diversity and everything going on within them, really, really love each other like everyone else is used to loving only the people that are like them that they choose, that that will blow people's minds. One of the things that the world needs so desperately that I think the church has is community. I think we have an understanding of community because it comes from God himself that would change people's lives and bring them the gospel. But so often, if the community of the church is unhealthy or if we aren't involved in that community, then we're missing out on the opportunity to to show the world the very thing that Jesus says they'll know us by, which is our love for each other. We had a park night on Wednesday night. It was awesome. It rained. Uh, I don't know what the deal is with the weather and the park nights. I'm sorry. We pray, but apparently you guys need to be praying more too because it was freezing at the first one. It was rainy at the second one. It's cooking hot dogs out in the rain. But as I, as I was walking around, I was giving people hot dogs because it was National Hot Dog Day, and I was really excited about that, probably too excited. Um, and uh, I was walking around giving hot dogs. Um, a couple from our church, an older couple, had brought a neighbor with them, and she was there eating with them. And um, I offered her a hot dog, and she declined. Um, and uh, I walked away sad. Um, and Ellie was still there talking to her. And um, she said to Ellie at some point, I really like the spread here. And Ellie's like, you like hot dogs? Uh, she's like, no, I mean, just kind of the spread, you know, like there's so many different kinds of people here right now. And Ellie told me that when I got home and I was thinking about it and I was like, yeah, you, you show up at a place and you're like, what is, what is the deal? What is the connection here? I'm, I'm not seeing uniforms. Okay. I'm not seeing, I mean, there's a sign, but it says happy national hot dog day. The, is that really the very thing drawing generations and nations together, you know? Wow, hot dogs, who, who knew, right? They obviously don't know what's, what's in them. <laughs> you could do a whole thing. I'm like, the church is like hot dogs, you know, if you see what's behind the scenes. Anyway. <laughs> but as I think about that, I go, you look at the church and you say, the church ought to be a place where you look at this group of people and you go, what in the world do these people have in common? I mean, they're all different ages. They're different ethnicities. They clearly are coming from different areas. Some seem to have a lot of money. Some have very little money. Why are they all together treating each other like this? And the answer should be Jesus. The only thing that's bringing them together, that unites them, that makes all of them have something in common is Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. That is the beautiful thing about the community Jesus is talking about here. And the more that we can embrace, not simply saying, I need a group of people who are just like me to help me be me and to say they hear me and see me and know me, the more that we can let go of that and recognize it for what it is, which is an incomplete view of love and community, the more that we can actually experience what Jesus is talking about, a love like the one that he gave. Jesus was both completely sacrificial and completely fulfilled. That's exactly what we want to be.